0: Thanks for tuning in to Why Life Science, a podcast produced by the BYU Life Science Museum at Brigham Young University. I'm Katie Knight.
1: And I'm Austin Lambert. Our mission here at the Life Science Museum is to inspire wonder, understanding, and reverence for our evolving planet. So with this podcast, we are here to bring you stories and interviews about life science research and projects going on in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and in the local community.
0: Visit our website, LSM.BYU.EDU for more information and to access notes from each episode.
1: Well, welcome to the Y Life Science Podcast. Uh, I'm Austin Lambert, joined with Katie Knight. And we are happy to be here with our guests, Teresa Gomez and Steve Schill. And today we want to talk about conservation mapping. Now, I don't know a whole lot about this. So, uh, first, let's just do quick introductions. You can tell us a little bit about yourself and then also how you ended up here at BYU. Teresa, do you want to start?
2: Sure. So I'm Teresa Gomez. I'm the head of the geospatial lab in the library. So like the place where everybody that needs to make a map on campus can go to get help.
1: I've visited you for help many times. Yeah, it's
2: fun. <laughs> huh? It's a fun place. Um, I've been there for about like three and a half years now. But I'm a BYU baby. I got my (laughs) bachelor's degree in geography from uh, BYU with an emphasis in GIS. And then later on, I got a master's degree in wildlife and white lands conservation.
0: Okay, hold on. You said uh, you got a degree in GIS. Now, I'm pretty sure our listeners are not going to know what that is.
2: Yeah. So GIS stands for geographic information systems, right? GIS is kind of like the technologies that we use to put geography together in a computer, just through mapping.
3: It's all about understanding spatial relationships mm-hmm. and making decisions based on those relationships that you map.
2: Yeah, it's it's a tool to put geography together. Like, geography is about place, right? So okay. with GIS, we can put all the things that we're observing in different locations in one thing, analyze them, visualize them, help them make sense. So that's what we do. And it's a, it's a growing industry. It's growing really, really, really fast. Like, uh, we get people in the library that are... In environmental science, biology, but also sociology, anthropology, history, like everybody can use the map.
1: If you're trying to visualize anything on a map, you would use GIS so that you don't have to hand draw it, basically? No, you don't need to hand draw your (laughs) maps anymore.
0: I didn't mean to cut you off from your introduction, so keep going then. Oh,
2: no, that's fine. I got my master's, and I worked really close with Steve Schill. I actually think Steve is the person that I've learned the most GIS from.
3: But um, now I go to you for my GIS question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: now we collaborate. It's really fun. Uh, but it was just, it all happened really smoothly, kind of. Like I graduated from my bachelor's and started doing like small contracts with Steve. And eventually, when I decided to go to grad school, there was a way bigger contract where I worked with Steve uh, helping Cubans uh, make a conservation plan for their mangroves and coral reefs. Um, and that was very, very fun. Wow. Yeah. So did
0: you spend time in
2: We went a couple of times, yeah, like three or four times.
3: But you're no longer a BYU baby. You're a BYU mother.
2: Oh, (laughs) yes. Because you have
3: many, many students that you've been teaching.
2: I do have a lot of students. I teach every summer, every spring semester, I teach the introduction to GIS class with the geography department. And it's really fun to just, like, teach the basics of GIS and see how students, like, take it in whatever discipline they come. Because most students that take that class are not geography students. They come from all sorts of majors. So we teach them the basics and then they take off and do their thing. And it's really magical. Is it a, an elective? It's an elective for a couple of different majors. It's not an elective for environmental science, biology. It's not an elective for any geography major. All geography majors have to take it.
3: Yeah, the nice thing about GIS is it serves a lot of different disciplines. It's applied in insurance. It's applied in you know, emergency management, conservation, the census. Uh, real estate, yeah. the census. I mean it. Public health. Everything's spatial, so there's a niche for everybody.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. Mm -hmm. At church. (laughs) Yeah, we use your services for our stake newsletter to see where the missionaries were in our stake. Yeah. (laughs) I
1: was going to say, I worked with Teresa doing a solar panel potential analysis of BYU campus. Yeah. So I have learned from Teresa. It's a very powerful tool to utilize, and there's a lot of different ways you can use it. Uh, Steve, maybe you want to introduce yourself
3: and then tell us a little bit maybe how you have been using GIS. I started at BYU uh, many, many moons ago, but I ended up transferring to Utah State and I graduated there. I met my wife and we, we both went to school there. And then I went on to do a master's degree and a PhD at University of South Carolina. And then I had to make a decision. I was deciding w- whether to do academics or you know, NGO work. And I decided that I wanted to really be on the front line of conservation. And I started working with the Nature Conservancy 19 years ago. It's been a wonderful experience. People I work with have been just really passionate and skilled in what they do. And, and I'm the, the science director for the Caribbean Division. So I, I work a lot with coral reefs and mangroves. And you're probably wondering why I'm, I'm here In Utah? Yeah, there's not a lot of coral reefs around here. But what brought me to Utah was that originally I was going to move with my family into the Caribbean. And we tried three times to do that, and it never really worked out with our arrangement, both from the TNC side and the family side. And they said, well, Steve, you can live wherever you want, right? You know, since we have family back here, we came back here with the intention of moving, but we've never left. (laughs) (laughs) So... But a lot of my job involves collecting data and then analyzing it. So, And this also gives me the opportunity to teach at BYU because I'm an adjunct at, in the geography department. And I teach classes in, in drone mapping. And then I also do image processing. How do you extract information from satellite imagery? And that's a lot of the work that I do is all that information goes into a GIS. We use satellite and airplane drone imagery to create information that we can then analyze in a gis
0: yeah, yeah we've had a couple of other episodes that they've talked about using this very system of drones and putting together pictures to make you say we just interviewed
1: kalai oh yeah. yeah
0: we love kalai <laughs> <laughs> tara bishop also talked about a mm-hmm. a project she did with drones and mapping mm-hmm. different plants mm-hmm. i remember right
1: so you said that you work with coral reefs and
3: mangroves in the the Caribbean. Do you get to travel there quite a bit? Yeah, well, we have uh, staff down there. We have about 70 employees and just in, in the division. In the Nature Conservancy, we're the largest environmental NGO in the world, and we work in about 75 countries. So sometimes I'll do projects, like I've worked a lot in Africa and uh, some South America projects, and... But mainly my work is in the Caribbean. The way we're funded is we're about 50% private money with private donations from foundations and then 50% public money where we write proposals and, and we get work to do things like nature-based solutions to climate change. That that may be a new term that you haven't heard of where we're trying to quantify how nature provides climate change adaptation in terms of protecting people you know reducing floods nature provides a variety of ecosystem services that once we quantify that governments can better appreciate it and then they make it a priority to protect it and we do the science to try to understand where these habitats are what their condition is how they're changing and how they're providing these services to people and That's what GIS remote sensing can do, these spatial technologies. And I work with a team, and we try to prioritize areas that governments should protect. That's pretty much our job.
2: And I think my favorite part about GIS is that you're putting a lot of things together, right? You're putting all, like, the natural ecosystems. You get a map of that. But you're also integrating people because the big thing right now with, like, sustainability and conservation is that sometimes we have seen each other, like, two separate things. Like, there's the planet and there's us. But that's not what it is. We're all (laughs) one thing. So what GIS can help you do is to put us all together, right? When we were working with that Cuba project, it was very nice because we were mapping mangroves and coast type and reefs and winds and waves and all these things. But we were also mapping people, right? So we were able to tell the government or the agencies, whoever was managing the place, listen, like this reef right here, it's protecting 200 people. And... It was nice because they could visualize it. There's power in seeing things. You can like get a spreadsheet and see a lot of numbers and be like, oh, cool. You can see a bar graph and you're like, oh, that makes sense. But when you see a map, you start understanding a lot more things and making connections or maybe asking new questions. And there's a lot of power in visualizing what's happening. So I think that's the magic of GIS, that it helps you put a lot of things together. It integrates all the variables. And then it helps you see them all together. And that's where the power comes.
3: Yeah, I, I always tell people the conservation dialogue starts with a good map yeah. because yeah. we're able to see those relationships, and that's why I have a job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it makes sense because you can see what you're looking at and then what's around it and what might be affecting it. And, and otherwise, looking at a spreadsheet or a bar graph, you're just seeing numbers and you don't recognize that there could be other factors that you may not consider otherwise. Mm-hmm.
1: So when you're making these, I guess, conservation plans, and do you start with, with making your map and just mapping everything you can and then coming up with hypotheses and trying to quantify solutions? Or, or what's your process for coming up with these conservation plans?
2: I think it goes both ways. A lot of times you already have a plan of what you want to do and then you make all the maps. A lot of times you look at all the maps and are like, what, what do I see here? Steve does a lot of creating the imagery collection, creating all the maps. They had this beautiful project of mapping all the reefs in the Caribbean.
3: We used satellite constellation called Planet, the Planet Dove. And that constellation consists of about 200 satellites. And we were able to sift through thousands of these satellites and piece together the best mosaic that we could put together to create the base map for these coral reefs. And it was at a high spatial resolution, about four meters. And so we were able to use image processing software to extract these out. We've already used that base map to understand where are the most climate resilient reefs. So Mm -hmm. we've integrated information like thermal temperatures, both cold and hot anomalies, and looked at hurricane intensity. We've looked at connectivity between reefs because reefs, they have larvae at different events where that larvae will travel and settle in other places in the Caribbean. So it's important Mm -hmm. to maintain those connections. All that information is being used and put to work to make conservation decisions. But going back to your original question, you know, conservation, I think the number one rule is listening. So in order for you to advance and get buy-in, we have these workshops and we bring stakeholders together and we listen to what their needs and concerns are. And then based on that, we establish objectives. And then based on those objectives, then we go and we get the data that we need to make the plans to support. Because if there's not that first step of listening and, and you know really reaching out to a wide variety of stakeholders that have a vested interest in nature then we can't arrive at the objectives that actually drive what we're going to do in the project. And that determines what data we get and what analyses we do. So that's a really important part.
1: So has there ever been time perhaps that that you were looking for a solution to a problem that people had presented to you and you found something that perhaps surprised you as you were analyzing a map or Hmm. the data? Yes.
2: We're mapping St. Vincent and St. Lucia and we found all the little white spots on the north part of the island. Oh, yes. That was fun.
3: Yes. Tell us more it, about that. <laughs> the white spots on the north part of the island, yeah. Well, and Saint, this is in Cuba? This no. This is in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. It's okay. a It's a small island. It's an archipelago of islands that probably has 140,000 people in the whole country. Mm-hmm. It's in the Eastern Caribbean and on the northern side, there's a volcano named Soufriere and it erupted uh, about a year ago. I don't know if you remember it in the news, but it was...
0: Okay, yeah. The
3: island has been pretty devastated, and it's recovering. Yeah. But on the north side, we were mapping buildings. We were trying to develop a conservation plan for the island, and we were noticing these <clears throat> these very small, white things on the north side, and that's, right. that's uninhabited.
0: It was drugs.
3: <laughs> yeah, so we... <laughs>
0: Oh, like actual drugs you were you were seeing these white things
3: they're actually tents they're farmers, former banana plantation owners uh, that have abandoned growing bananas, and now they grow ganja okay on, on the north <laughs> north slope of the island and that and so the Department of forestry, when they saw the mapping that we had done, they didn't realize the extent of <laughs> that that activity that was going on and so that's another great thing about GIS. It really opens your eyes to uh, things that are going on that you're unaware of. And also, um, wasn't there some work in Cuba uh, when we were working at uh, the Isle of Youth? Mm-hmm. There was some insight that we were getting from that island when we were doing our analysis.
2: The nice thing about working with the stakeholders is that we create the data, right? Like we listen to them, then we create the data, then we go back to them and, and we're like, is this correct? So we spent a lot of time with, with the Cuban scientists looking at our data, and they were able to like let us know this is correct, this is incorrect. And they found a couple of like weird things suspicious. Like I don't remember if we knew what it was, but they were like, this yeah. is weird. They were like, this is not normal.
3: We were modeling the flood protection benefits of coral reefs, and that's a real advantage when you're working with locals is they know their country better than anyone, especially if you work with fishers you're mapping reefs and fish habitat, you want them to be able to review your maps because they know the water better than anyone. And you could send a lot of people out there to survey, but all that knowledge is in this fisher's head and they can really help calibrate and validate the model.
2: And another nice thing, especially when we were working with Cuba is that a lot of times they don't have access to that information because of, like, restrictions that they have on internet use and things like that. So it was really a great collaboration because they were getting a lot of data that they couldn't get on their own, and they were helping us create good data. So it was this great exchange, and we built some good friendships and good collaboration with them. It was was very fun. We trained them on how to do things. First, first we had, like, a couple of... We had, like, 10, Mm -hmm. and then the last time we went, we had, like...
3: Probably at least 30. Yeah, we were
2: training... Expanding the. Yeah,
3: that's always our intent is to build the capacity. I do a lot of drone trainings. Drones are a great way to monitor uh, a small area on a regular basis. And so we train in that. We train in GIS. We train in models. And we want to build the capacity.
0: Right, so that they can do it and carry it on themselves. Mm
1: -hmm. Once you take the maps back, you get everything verified what are your hopes that these stakeholders do with your maps? I mean, you mentioned like continue monitoring things. Are you hoping that they adjust practices like management practices of the land or the sea or what are ultimately the purposes of these conservation maps?
2: I'm more like the education side, right? So what I've seen, and it was been really cool is that we trained them on how to model a couple of things and then they will take it to their own level, right? Like to like the actual little Island where they lived and they will think of, about all the other things that they could do using the same way of thinking to solve other problems that they have. And I think that to me is magic because you empower them, you show them something, it's delivered well, and then they just take it to the next level and keep like sharing the information with other scientists. So that's that's the whole goal, to empower the locals to
0: protect their own land. Find different applications for mm-hmm. the service. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and conservation happens at multiple scales. So the local scale is really important, what you're talking about. We have these global meetings, the Conference of the Parties on Biodiversity and Climate Change, where governments are making pledges to protect X amount of land and water. And a lot of times they don't have the science or the resources to understand which 10% or 20%. Now it's a big 30 by 30 goal is what we're trying to Um. do protect 30% by 2030, and so what 30% do you protect? And so that's where science comes in. We try to map biodiversity richness. We try to map all these different ecosystem services. Like where are the coral reefs where you have reef protection, you have recreation benefits, where you have storm control, reduction of flooding, where there's high connectivity, these are the sweet spots you really want to zero in on where it's serving multiple purposes. Those are the areas we want to protect and restore. So science can really drive that agenda on helping these countries protect nationally. And then looking across the globe, I mean, we only have about 3% of the oceans protected. Mm -hmm. That number is growing, but we really want to ramp that up and And help these countries identify not only in the shallow zone, but where the deep parts of the ocean, the pelagic zones that we should be protecting. So having
1: worked all around the world, and I imagine you've worked on a bunch of really cool projects, so you may not be able to answer this question, but what is like your favorite or the coolest project that you've been able to work on?
3: Well, I remember I've worked a lot in Haiti. I have a passion for working in Haiti because I just love the culture, the people, and If you can get conservation to work there, you can get it to work anywhere. The reliance on nature is really big in Haiti. You know, the fishers, they're going out with not a lot of resources. You know, you hear about the deforestation and the terrible, you know, environmental catastrophe that Haiti is. And you've got to have the political stability to do conservation. That continues to be an issue. I've seen some of the healthiest reefs in Haiti... And I remember uh, we were working with the International Development Bank on a project in northern Haiti in an area called Three Bays National Park. When we go there, we want to map out the reefs with satellite imagery, and we have to drop these underwater cameras down from a boat, and we, we look to see what's there. If it, is it seagrass? Is it coral? Is it hard bottom? Is it sand? And we saw some amazing healthy coral reef, and I was like, wait a minute. I got to go check this out. So I, I put on my my mask, snorkel. I dived down there and taking these pictures, and I was blown away. There was approaching, you know, 70 80% live coral cover, and you don't see that in a lot of places in the Caribbean. It's like, wow, there's something special going on here. This really does need to be protected. And so we mapped the entire area. We mapped all the reefs, and we identified where the healthy reefs are. And that went into a plan that they're now managing that. They're managing the fisheries. They're managing, you know, the land-based pollutions. We're identifying where runoff goes into the ocean and trying to control, you know, especially around these, these coral reefs that are really healthy. Nature will surprise you. If, if you manage for these things that we're talking about, um, you know, nature's resilient. And um, you'll, you can continue to be surprised.
0: That's really cool. And what about you, Teresa? I think this is not the coolest story, but
2: this is my favorite little mapping project that I worked with, with Steve. There was this professor in Gabon that had been doing bird observations for years, but he mapped all that on paper
0: maps. So he just drew it out.
2: Yeah. Paper maps. (laughs) Hundreds of paper maps. (laughs) He's
3: been been doing this for, like, 20 years um, and does not know how to use a computer.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Steve comes, and he hands me a bunch like this. (laughs) Like, a bunch of paper maps, like, this big.
3: She's
0: showing us with her fingers multiple inches. (laughs) Yeah, well,
3: I, I met him, and I was like, this is a data treasure. You know, you have to get this digitized. And so, I was like, can I... Can I take these and put them into a GIS database? Because this is a wealth of knowledge that it was, if your house burns down, we lose all this knowledge. So <laughs> let's get these digitized.
2: And that, I did that for days. And then it was all written in French, and it was also cursive. <laughs> so it was, it was it was, a challenge.
1: But you said, do you speak French?
2: No. <laughs> I speak Italian and Spanish, so that kind of helps. But also Google starts, like, knowing that you are looking for – bird name species in french and also uh, it also yeah. had the scientific name so uh, that worked out but it, i was like "Ooh, there's a lesson there <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I was like, okay but it was really fun because i was like this is gold like years and years of observations that we are making um legacy now so i love that i still and think that's one of my favorite things you
3: also did that for frogs i, I did that for frogs yeah, too yeah mm-hmm. so that all went into uh a database that the the government of Gabon is using to prioritize protected areas. The Nature Conservancy built a freshwater atlas. Um, we mostly work on freshwater systems, and uh, and you know, Gabon is leading many of the African countries in protection. They're probably going to be the first country to hit thirty percent terrestrial protection and thirty percent marine protection by twenty thirty. Wow! Oh,
2: I did all this as an undergrad, right? Or, like, a fresh graduate. But I like it so much because I was like, I don't care if I'm just, like, digitizing, right? I'm creating data for bigger things. Yeah. So that, for me, has always been, like, the mentality of, like, working with GIS. Because sometimes we do really, really cool analysis and it's just, whoa, it blows your mind away. And it's hours and hours or computer processing. But a lot of times it's just clicking.
0: Mm-hmm. For hours. It can be monotonous.
2: Yeah. You get, like, your hands, like, all sore and stuff. This entire time I've been like, this has a greater purpose. So I don't care yeah I'm just like this like this is important like every single piece every single level of data creation analysis um teaching it's all important so it's very fulfilling for me to just like work in this environment
3: my hats off to all the students i've hired that have done <laughs> all this painstaking work but we all have to pay our, our dues and i remember in 1994 when i was at utah state i wor- was working with doug ramsey and we digitized the first Plant taxonomy of Utah. Oh, and and I think it was a professor. It was Welch. Yeah, we have our it, herbarium it, named it after was a him. Big green book. Yeah, a Utah flora. Yeah, and in 1994, <laughs> I had to go through and I had to on a big digitizing tablet click areas where each of these species occurred in Utah. Oh wow! And I I did that for we all pay. Yeah, we, we, we all take the, the yeah. Usually, yeah.
2: By now, I don't do a lot of the like the. Like they did, they
0: now
1: you
2: have students, <laughs> that and do now that. I <laughs> have students that do the data work. But it
1: wasn't too bad. Well, so you've each talked then about how you know, despite how monotonous or or difficult the work might be, how important it is. Why is is conservation, and and why are the the, the digitization of data and all of these things? Why are they so important to each of you?
2: I really like. Being alive, and I really like humans. I love a lot of humans on this planet. I don't know. To me, it's just a matter of uh, this is our planet. This is us. This is our family. This is our friends. This is our brothers and sisters. And we all share the same planet. And, you know, like, life is difficult in a lot of ways. But if we can do something to help at least our environment, make it a little easier for some of us, I will do that. And things are, like, really crazy. Like, the way we live life, it doesn't allow us to you know, compensate for a lot of things. But I think there's a couple of things that we can do and we can be aware of what we do with nature, be aware of what nature gives us and just treat it in a better way. And hopefully, as we do all these things and have these conversations, we're showing that we care. Like, I do this because I care. I care about my family. I care about my friends. I care about my students. I care about my fellow citizens of this planet. So I think this is why I do it, because, because I care. I like sharing this planet. It's a great planet to be in. I try to make it better.
3: This planet is our life support system. Yeah. We need to be good stewards. And I think part of being good stewards is making good decisions. So there's a lot of bad decisions that, mm-hmm. that have been made that have affected the health of the environment. and And I think GIS is one of those tools that really allows you to get insight into both environmental and economic decisions you know cities need to grow we need to have jobs we need we need to support that economy but we need to do it in a way that is smart and gis helps you do that helps you do models helps you do predictions you know it helps you allocate your needs i work a lot with marine spatial planning and marine spatial planning is all about trying to balance all the needs and demands of the ocean. So how can you put aside X percent as a reserve that acts as a fish bank? Mm -hmm. You know, it actually generates more fish. Or how can you you set aside tourism zones or areas where you can do uh, deep sea mining in a safe way? There's a lot of demands, and we can't all be doing the same thing everywhere. So GIS allows us to spatially allocate that and do things in a smart way. And in today's day and age, we need to be doing things in a smart way. Otherwise, it's going to end up in chaos.
0: (laughs) For future generations, yeah. Yeah. After we are gone, the earth needs to be sustainable Mm -hmm. for them.
1: So it's no big deal, but the prosperity of the earth depends wholly upon our understanding of GIS. That's what (laughs) I hear. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, GIS helps you put a lot of things together. It's not everything, but it can <laughs> put together like a, a significant chunk of information and yeah. just like show it in a way that people will be like, oh, yeah.
3: We need more good map makers out there. Yeah.
2: Yes. Cartography <laughs> is important. Good maps are important. I'm really picky with maps. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, thank you so much. Is
1: there anything else that either of you? I think you should ask Dad?
2: Steve about his snake story.
1: Oh, we, I don't know if we have time for that. We I feel like, like well, there's we can, always time I for a snake say, story. I was going to say, there's always time
3: for a snake story. So, Steve, <laughs> no. tell us about uh, your snake story. Well, I was in Costa Rica. We were living down there. This was in I think, 2011. And we were in Cahuita National Park. And I was with my family. And I was carrying my three-year-old uh, when I got bit by a ferrolance. Bothrops, I think is the scientific name. But it's, it's a fairly aggressive snake and pretty dangerous. And I was rushed to Cologne, where I was in the hospital. And, and the interesting part about this story was that while I was, I was in the hospital, you know, it's 100 degrees. I'm in a cinder block with, Ugh. you know, no windows. And, you know, my, my Spanish is not that great. And I was going in and out of consciousness. And I see above me this IV It was going into me. And for some reason, I reached up and I opened up the IV. (laughs) And that IV was holding the anti-venom. And and it started flowing into me and I immediately had a severe allergic reaction. I remember seeing these bright purple hives appear on my my feet and my face was just starting to swell up. And the people in the room started yelling and the nurse ran in and, and turned it off. And I later found out that since I'm allergic to horses, I'm allergic to the antivenom because the antivenoms derive from the antibodies of horses. Oh. <laughs> they actually create. So I was basically I almost killed myself <laughs> from administering antivenom self-administered. You didn't even know you were doing it. You're just well, messing around, or I, I was delirious. You know, my <laughs> my my ankle was swollen up, and I was just um, I was a mess. But and so they had to give me cortisone shots while they gave me a little bit of anti-venom at a time, but that whole process took about a week until I could, my blood work was actually stable enough. Ugh. Yeah, that was that was a crazy time in Costa Rica. My mom and dad were visiting us and they wouldn't let visitors in this, this hospital. Well, m- maybe once a day. But when I was released, I remember getting in a wheelchair and it was the only wheelchair for that floor they took me to the elevator and then I had to get out and I couldn't walk cause my leg was still sore. So I crawled into elevator <laughs> and then, and then the elevator went back and I crawled out of the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had taken the wheelchair and they only had a few wheelchairs. And so I keep telling myself if I ever win the lottery or, or make it big, I'm going to buy a bunch of wheelchairs to Cologne in Costa Rica because, um, there's not a lot of wheelchairs there, but we ended up, Moving back to Utah. Yeah. I, yeah, we came back to Utah and and my leg my leg healed and I survived, yeah. <laughs>
0: wow, that's some snake bite. Wow.
3: So be careful when you're hiking on those Costa Rica jungle trails.
0: It yeah. just was it on your leg the bite?
3: It was on my ankle. On your and ankle? uh you know, they camouflage very well and yeah. Mm. Good story. <laughs> Always time for a snake story. <laughs> so.
1: Well, thank you so much. Yeah,
0: thank you. Yeah, appreciate you guys coming. This was great. Yeah.
1: Thank
3: you.
0: Yeah. Let's make a map.